The scripture reading this morning is Matthew 16, verse 21 through 26, beginning on page 798 of the Pew Bible. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And, Pe and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are, you are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> Thanks, Camden. So we're just one week away now from the beginning of Holy Week a really important week in the life of our church, any church, the church. The week in which we enter Jerusalem with Jesus next Sunday uh, on Palm Sunday. And we take the journey with him to the upper room on Maundy Thursday and to Gethsemane. And then on Good Friday, we journey to the cross, to Golgotha with Jesus. And then, of course, the Easter Sunday beyond. We've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew in this Lenten season as a way of addressing some of the ills of our consumer culture and the ways in which that culture seeps into uh, our lives, our faith even, and sometimes even our church. And we've addressed this by looking at the way of Jesus rather than the way of the world and seeking to follow the way of Jesus. And as we follow Jesus in this way, and especially in the Gospel of Matthew, we see a definitive change in chapter 16. Much like we're sort of changing our focus as we get ready for Holy Week, so too did Jesus. You see, much of Jesus' ministry happened in Galilee, this sort of northern region of what we would call Israel today. It's a very kind of quiet, backwater, pastoral, beautiful place, not overly important politically. But in the midst of his Galilean ministry here in Matthew chapter 16, his focus changes. There are great things going on. He's being affirmed by these crowds. But things start to change. He focuses on Jerusalem and on his suffering on the cross. So this morning, we're going to do the same. We're going to focus our eyes on the cross of Jesus Christ. But we need to remind ourselves what this cross actually is. This cross for us is something that we might put on a, on a necklace or a, a bracelet. It might be something that we find a nice, ornate sort of looking one that we put in our homes or on our desks as a reminder, as a symbol of Jesus. But we need to remember today that the cross back then was something quite different. The cross was a torture device. It was the first century equivalent of an electric chair. It was the symbol of suffering. It was a symbol of death. It was a symbol of capital punishment. And here Jesus 
begins to turn his focus to the cross. And it's okay for us this morning to admit that the cross is heavy and it's awkward and it's uncomfortable. I can attest to that right now. It's an uncomfortable thing to hold. It's an uncomfortable reality to live into. The cross is largely uncomfortable for us. And there's part of it where I say it ought to be uncomfortable. But this is what Jesus fixed his eyes on. In Matthew chapter 16, it is definitive. I am focused on Jerusalem. I am focused on this cross. And so I want to invite us today as we go to God's word to follow him even in this. As Jesus turns his eyes towards the cross, I want to invite us to do the same. Let's pray as we begin. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Let me set the stage for this text for you. Jesus uh, has just recently taken a little field trip up to a place called Caesarea Philippi. It's in the foothills that are north of the Sea of Galilee, and it's um, the source of the River Jordan. It's about a day and a half journey from the Sea of Galilee, and it's also a place of notorious pagan worship. And it's in this place in Caesarea Philippi that Jesus asks this question of his disciples, who do you say that I am? Earlier in Matthew 16. And Peter, in the midst of this very dramatic scene, in the midst of this, this, this pagan worship place, he says, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. And, and, and Jesus blesses him because of this affirmation and he says, Peter, you and, and this, this testimony that you've just given of who I am, that's the rock on which I'm going to build my church. That's the rock on which I'm going to build my church. And then the passage that was read for us directly follows. Verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. I want to focus on the first few words there for a second, make a connection for you. From that time on, Jesus began. We've actually heard that phrase verbatim before in the Gospel of Matthew. It happens directly after Jesus' temptation in the wilderness in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 17 says, From that time on, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. The exact same words. And here we see the same language, except that this time Jesus is focused on the cross. He's focused on suffering. And this tie to the temptation in the wilderness is important because it creates a link between these two narratives, which I think are necessary, but it also shows us that Jesus is in a new phase of his ministry. His focus is elsewhere now. It's now laser-focused on the cross. Now, Peter doesn't accept these words very well. He's upset or confused by Jesus' words. I'm not sure which one it is. But we see him take Jesus aside. I kind of envision him like putting his arm around Jesus and going, hey, you want to go take a walk for a second? Hey, Jesus, that's not going to happen. I mean, come on, let's think positive, Okay. You see, Peter has just made this bold proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah. That's pretty dramatic news to him now. That Jesus is saying, I've got to go to Jerusalem and I've got to die. I mean, maybe Jesus is just feeling a little down today. 
Maybe he's feeling a little pessimistic, a little fatalistic. So Peter rebukes him. It's the same word that Jesus, it says when Jesus rebukes the waves or rebukes the demons in people. Pretty strong language. Quite a bold move for Peter. I'm pretty confident he didn't know exactly how bold this move was. But Jesus does not react real well to this action taken by Peter, does he? It says that Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You're setting your mind on, not on divine things, but on human things. Now, if I can pause this scene for just a moment, I want to do so because I think it gives us an opportunity to enter into this narrative in a couple different ways. First, I want to put ourselves in Peter's shoes here. Can you imagine if Jesus said this to you? If Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, to you? I mean, if Jesus admonished me in this way, I would like to think that I would like dissolve into tears and be wrecked for the rest of my life and completely heartbroken at such harsh words. But here's the thing, and this is the beautiful thing about Peter. Peter sort of serves as an avatar for all of the disciples, not just the disciples who were there, but uh, unfortunately for each and every one of us as well. We look at Peter and we go, that's probably what I would have done. We're kind of that way with Peter. A lot of us, having heard Jesus say this, would have probably taken him aside and said, let's take a walk and let's, let's try and clear your mind. This, this doesn't sound quite right. What is Peter's sin here? What would, what would cause Jesus to say this to Peter? What, what did Peter do so wrong? Well, he did something that I do daily, probably. And I'm guessing most of you do too. And that is, he valued comfort over sacrifice. Peter heard Jesus' words about the cross and the suffering, and um, he just couldn't handle it. He just couldn't handle it. I like how he just glosses over, uh, I'll rise up on the, Thursday, on the third day. He's like, well, hold on, dying? No, I can't handle that. And we do this too. We live our lives so often putting our comforts over any kind of suffering. We seek the comfort of our homes and our cars and our school districts and our vacations and our retirement accounts and our portfolios and our social circles and on and on. We actively avoid decisions that would require compromise or sacrifice. When we hear about other people's sacrifice, often our heart is to try and stop them. Oh no, you don't need to do that. And not all of this is bad or wrong, but what Peter does is he places his concept of comfort over and above the will of Jesus, which is a dangerous, destructive thing to do. You see, when Peter in the preceding verses gives that testimony, calls Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, he has a certain vision of what that Messiah is and what that Messiah is going to do. A warrior Messiah who is going to come much like King David and is going to rid Israel of their enemies and is going to sit on an eternal throne and things are going to be good. In other words, Peter's saying, this Messiah should make things relatively comfortable for me if I follow him because this Messiah is comfortable. He has no more enemies. He's sitting comfortably on his throne. He's not threatened. So when Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to undergo trials, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, Peter just can't handle that. The Messiah surely wouldn't suffer. The Messiah had to conquer, right? But Peter's concept of the Messiah is not the way of Jesus. And for this reason, 
Peter's called a stumbling block. Peter's rebuke may, well, may have been well-intentioned. I think it probably was, but he has clearly crossed the line here. Not long ago, don't, don't lose the, the imagery here, Jesus calls Peter the rock on which he's going to build his church, and now that rock has become what? A stumbling block. A pretty vivid image for a culture that traveled by foot on rocky roads all the time. What, what once was a smooth stone that you could build something upon, it's become now a stumbling block that's going to cause people to, to trip and stumble and injure themselves. Jesus, however, is still set on Jerusalem. And here, Peter is standing directly in his way because he's just not comfortable with the idea of sacrifice. This man who had just proclaimed the Messiah is now openly defying him. And perhaps this is an opportunity to confess that we often do the same. What do we learn from Peter? We learn from Peter that our love of comfort and our discomfort with suffering and sacrifice is often a stumbling block to the will of God, and it's not the way of Jesus. We become a stumbling block when we place our desires for comfort ahead of Jesus' way of sacrifice. It sounds straightforward enough, but it's actually radical, really tough stuff for us to live into. And it's okay to admit that. A friend of mine put this quote on their social media this week. Anything that costs you your peace is too expensive. And here's the thing, I read it and it didn't faze me that much. I was like, oh yeah, that's a nice thought. And I was in the middle of this text preparing for this sermon and it didn't even catch me. <laughs> this person who posted this is a Christ follower like I am. It's someone I respect, I respect her. So we're conditioned to say, yes, that's, that's yeah, you know what, you're right. Anything that costs me my peace is just too expensive. But then you read it enough times and you go, wow, that is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus, the way of sacrifice is so far from what we're accustomed to day to day. And our desire for peace and comfort becomes a stumbling block to the way of Jesus. So we put ourselves in Peter's shoes. How about let's put ourselves in Jesus' shoes now. Jesus has his eyes set on the cross. That's the place where he is headed. And Peter now literally stands in front of him as a stumbling block. And here it is that we get Jesus' harsh words. Get behind me, Satan. These words are reminiscent of Jesus' words from the temptation in the wilderness where the devil tempted him. And you might remember a few weeks ago that we we talked about the name Satan actually means splitter, the one who wants to split you from the presence of God. So throughout the temptation in the desert, the splitter continually encourages Jesus to take shortcuts, to eliminate suffering, to, to get what you want and what you need on demand right now with no pain on the way. And at the end of the third temptation, Jesus rebukes the devil, banishing him from his presence. And so here too, Jesus recognizes the splitter's words in Peter's words and replies harshly, get behind me, Satan. Now, Jesus is not calling Peter names here. We need to be careful about that. Rather, I think he's recognizing the devil's work through Peter. This is not to say that Peter was demon-possessed or that he had yielded to Satan in some way. I think Peter was well-intentioned, like I think most of us usually are, and I think Jesus knows that. But the splitter was at work through him and trying to convince Jesus that he didn't have to choose that way of suffering, that way of sacrifice. There was an easier way. 
And I think Jesus was probably genuinely tempted by this, just like I think he was genuinely tempted in the wilderness. By saying to Peter, get behind me, there's kind of a dual purpose here. He's actually saying to Peter, like, physically get out of my way, like, like, actually get behind me. But I think he's also speaking to the splitter, saying, spiritually get behind me. You have no right to be in front of me. You have no right to block my way to the cross. It's a powerful statement. What do we learn from Jesus? Well, we learn that when we're tempted to avoid the way of suffering, that we are to call out that temptation as the work of the splitter so that we can proceed. We're so easily distracted by our comforts, our easy ways, the pleasures of life, but we must regularly come to our senses and ask, is this the way of sacrifice? And if it's not, then we must oppose the splitter's work and fix our eyes back on the cross. This is important stuff because if our lives aren't marked by sacrifice, we have to ask how well we are really following Jesus. I got to say it again. Man, that's a tough word, but I got to say it again. If our lives aren't marked by sacrifice, we have to ask how well we're really following Jesus. When I was in seminary, I had an internship at a small covenant church in the city of Chicago. I started by doing youth ministry, preaching uh, occasionally. And after a year, uh, I, had, I was working about 10 hours a week. And after a year, I had asked, you know, is, is there any way that I could pick up some hours? I went to the leadership and said, I'm, I'm enjoying this. I feel affirmed in what I'm doing. Um, are there any more hours for me to have so I can just spend more time here and, and do more of my work here? And they went back and they talked to me and they're like, yes, actually, we have 10 more hours for you. Eight of those hours would be as the church custodian. And I was like, oh, wow, I wasn't quite expecting that. Um, but I asked for the hours and now it would seem pretty uh, prideful of me to be like, no, I don't want those hours, so I better take them. Um, and so I started as the church custodian. And I had a problem uh, right away on day one. And the problem was the men's bathroom. The men's bathroom, uh, there's one little bathroom down in the basement. It's radiator heat in this old building, so it's always like cranked up. It's like 99 degrees. It smelled horrible. Um, There was there was something on. I mean, there was fluid on the floor. It was just a. It was bad. The 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 garbage was overflowing. I can't even talk about how bad the toilet was in that bathroom in church. It would be wrong of me to do that. It was just a bad place. And so for the first three weeks that I was there. Um, I did what I think, I hope some of you might do, which is I did the bare minimum in the men's bathroom, right? Just enough to be like, this is sort of clean. Like I took out the garbage, but I'm like, I don't want to touch the toilet. I don't want to touch the sink. I don't want to like do, I I did just enough so it looks sort of clean. Um, And actually, after a couple weeks, I started to resent uh, the church a little bit in some of this. I was like, geez, I'm leading the youth ministry. I'm preaching every once in a while. And like, I have to do this? This is horrible. And of course, after three weeks, uh, somebody complained about the men's bathroom. And, uh, and my boss came to me and was like, I, you know, I know you, so I know you're giving your very best. I just wanted to pass this information to you. And that was kind of a, a knife in the heart. So God started to work in my heart. Um, and I realized that this was my job, that the church had given me as much as youth ministry was, as much as the preaching was. And if I couldn't do this part of my job well, the unseen, disregarded, smelly part of the job, 
then why would anybody take seriously what I have to say on Sunday morning in the pulpit? So I began to clean the bathroom. And I mean, I cleaned that bathroom. Hands and knees, gagging from the smell, embracing the yuck. I think I scrubbed decades of neglect from that little room. I was in between every little piece of grout between the tiles. I mean, I cleaned that thing as well as you possibly could, and it looked good. It looked really good. We were back at Grace Coming to Church just a few weeks ago with our confirmation students serving in their food pantry, and guess the first room that I went right to? Guess which one? I went straight to that bathroom, and I kid you not, I had like a really sweet time of prayer and worship in that bathroom, because that bathroom became a tangible example for me of what sacrifice really is. To this day, I'm committed to never, ever, ever getting to a place in my life where I feel like I'm too important or too comfortable to get on my hands and knees and scrub a gross toilet. I'm really thankful that the leadership didn't say, oh, geez, no, we can't ask him to do that. He's training to be a pastor. Geez, we can't ask him to scrub the toilets. Because guess what? Scrubbing toilets provided some of the most fruitful lessons of that internship. Here's the thing. The, the way of Jesus actually moved me from the pulpit down to the bathroom. When we choose the way of sacrifice, we are actively laying down our comforts, our wills, our wants, our pride, our security, our money, our gifts, our time for the sake of others, but even more so just for the sake of ourselves. It's what Jesus did for us. And I think that he did this for us because he wanted us to follow in his way, to meet him in the sacrifice, to fix our eyes on the cross. And to the many of you who are choosing sacrifice each and every day, I want you to know I see you and I'm inspired by you. For those of you who care lovingly day in and day out for ailing spouses or ailing parents or special needs children, that's the way of sacrifice. For those who rearrange their budgets so they can give a costly gift to the church or to a partnership like our Chopra Church Partnership in India, that's the way of sacrifice. For those who open up their homes and their tables and their bedrooms to the stranger, for those who clean the church kitchen on a Tuesday night when nobody is watching, for those who enter into the messy pain of other people at great cost to your own emotions and your time, that is the way of sacrifice. So when we choose comforts over sacrifice, they become a stumbling block to us. And like Peter, they say, you don't have to do that. Someone else can do that. Let someone else. You deserve better than that. And when we hear such voices, let's remember that those are the voices of the splitter who stands in opposition to the way of Jesus, directly in front of Jesus, blocking the way. And like Jesus, let's call them out for what they are, tools of the evil one who want to split us from the presence of God because I have to tell you, the presence of God is felt so fully when we are sacrificing. And it's ultimately sacrifice that marks us as his followers. So let me ask just a couple questions. What in your life is keeping you from the way of sacrifice? 
What stumbling blocks keep you from the cross? To what things do you need to say, Splitter, get behind me because this is the way of Jesus and I have already chosen to walk in it. Just as Jesus set his eyes on the cross, so we have the opportunity to do so today as well. Let's follow him. Let us live a life of sacrifice to the very end. Let's pray. Lord, would you teach us what it means to set our eyes on the cross? Would you teach us what it means to fix our eyes on the places of sacrifice so that we might be more full followers of who you are, Jesus, the one who gave up so much for us? Would you give us the courage today to remove the stumbling blocks of the comforts of our lives, the things that resist sacrifice, so that we may walk in your way, truly follow you, and know you more, we pray. Amen.